Welcome to the book album, your place for everything related to reading and language. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gens. Now, bookmark that book and let's begin. <laughs> hello, hello, and welcome to the show. Hello, and herzlich willkommen to the podcast. Today, our first novel of the year in 2023 is none other than Nicholas Nickleby by Charles Dickens. This one is a fun one, so I am grateful and happy to bring this novel to you all this week. Let us start this time with a plot summary because the plot is multivaried. There's a myriad of things to talk about and it's much, much easier to get into the other segments once we have a mutual understanding of the plot. The plot revolves around two or three central characters and there's a huge cast of supporting characters. Nicholas Nickleby, who is our heroine, and his sister Kate Nickleby are our main honchos here. We have a couple of different alternating storylines throughout the book, and they mostly revolve around the happenings of Nicholas and Kate. Their mother, Mrs. Nickleby, also factors in because she lives with Kate for most of the novel. The senior Nicholas Nickleby dies at the beginning of this novel, leaving his family, Nicholas, Kate, and Mrs. Nickleby in dire straits. The family moves to London in a desperate attempt to find Ralph Nickleby, the late Mr. Nickleby's uncle, or brother rather, (laughs) and Mr. Nickleby, that is Nicholas Nickleby Jr., his uncle. Ralph Nickleby is this miserly evil character at the end of the day and there's a lot of characterization with these four characters and a couple other minor characters but mainly these four in the beginning of this book as this family is moving nicholas is a very brave but naive character much like perhaps oliver twist or in the beginning of david copperfield David, or um, perhaps in also Great Expectations, there's some similarities with the main characters there. Um, Kate is this steadfast and true and brave, very loyal uh, character, and she's just very sweet and she's very innocent, and we see later in the book how she overcomes some of that innocence to fight for herself and to Um, create a better life for herself. Mrs. Nickleby is kind of a half-wit in some senses. She is very dreamlike. She gets lost in her own mind and her own presuppositions a lot. Um, And she's a very good conversationalist with herself 
so most of the characters around her end up listening rather than talking and it's very very difficult to convince her of something once she's got her mind on it. And Ralph Nickleby, of course, the evil, despondent character who will go essentially to any lengths to rob his so-called customers or his so-called business people uh, of everything they have and to squander a lot of the money. He's just a very, very greedy figure, very much like Scrooge. Ralph Nickleby ends up essentially saying, I'm going to get these kids to work in order to get them out of my hair, get them supporting themselves. He sends Nicholas to a friend of his, business partner you shall say, um, called Squeers, and Squeers has a boarding school in Yorkshire that he runs, so Nicholas becomes an assistant schoolmaster of sorts, and he sends Kate to a seamstresses uh, under the name of Mantellini also a business partner of Ralph Nickleby, an acquaintance. Before Nicholas Nickleby gets shipped off to Yorkshire to help the schoolmaster, who ends up being quite treacherous indeed, Nicholas ends up befriending Newman Noggs, who is Ralph Nickleby's assistant for the time being. Newman has a very mysterious past and I think an even more mysterious countenance. He ends up cracking his knuckles quite a bit um, <laughs> in kind of these anxious slash excited flurries of emotion. Um, and I think it's a really interesting contrast in the beginning of the book to have Ralph Nickleby, this really stern and stoic figure, on the one hand, and Newman Noggs, this excitable, mysterious, antsy kind of figure on the other. Once Nicholas, and we follow Nicholas throughout the first part here, once Nicholas gets through to Yorkshire, which is a whole journey and a half in its own, he ends up finding the truth about the Yorkshire school that he's been posted at, um, it is a, just a desolate place. They do not take care of the children there at all. There's deaths of the children in the school. There are, is abuse for sure. There's neglect. The children are starving to death. They're not having really any uh, instruction whatsoever, which in turn reflects on the lack of uh, education and instruction and wisdom of Mr. Squeers, the headmaster. Um, the family, the entire Squeers's family, is extremely corrupt. Um, they have a young son named Wackford Squeers, uh, who is about the age of the other boys in the school, and he gets everything that, that is nice that the boys come in with. Uh, they, the boys, give up basically everything to support young Wackford Squeers, who uh, is being primed essentially to take over the family business one day, and he is as cruel as his father. There's the woman of the household, Mrs. Squeers. She's also just cruel. She is the one, I suspect, who really runs the show in the Yorkshire boarding school, which is even scarier <laughs> in, some, in some respects, because she's just so sinister. She's the one who plans all the meal reductions and all of the 
um, household chores and things that the boys end up doing. And there's also Fanny Squeers, who is a young lady in the household, also selfish, vain, cruel, and not very intelligent. Um, she ends up having a fancy that Nicholas is in love with her when he comes and works for her father. And so she hosts a party of sorts with her best friend and her best friend's boyfriend slash fiance. Um, Nicholas ends up hitting on her best friend uh, and that doesn't go well for the fiance, Mr. John Bodie, or for Fanny. And Fanny uh, thereafter makes it known that Nicholas and his new confidant, Mike, who is a boy turned man, who has kind of been lost or neglected. His parents never came for him at the boarding school. Smike and Nicholas end up being treated even worse than before because of the misfortune with Fanny. This whole affair ends very badly indeed with Nicholas beating Mr. Squeers, the headmaster, within an inch of his life and escaping with the help of none other than John Bodie. Meanwhile in London, Ralph Nickleby gets a letter that blames Nicholas for everything that happens at the Yorkshire boarding school. Ralph uses Kate Nickleby in the meantime to get some business people that he wants to squander to dinner. There's a lord there, Sir Mul Mulberry Hawk, and there's, you know, a couple of other high honchos, people who have money or have the potential to have money, and he essentially uses Kate as a bait of sorts. He uses her as this kind of sexual lure, um, which is really, it ends badly. Kate gets assaulted, not physically, but there is a man who ends up alone with her and he makes moves towards her. Um, and this is the first time we start to see some of the indignation pile up in Kate, where she realizes that her uncle really is a wicked man after all, and he won't protect her. So she has to stand up for herself in more and more respects throughout the book when she deals with Ralph. Nicholas and Smike end up heading to Portsmouth because they have the idea that they could become sailors and on the way to Portsmouth they meet a particular man who is in the theater. His name is Mr. Vincent Crummles and he has two sons, the younger Crummleses, and also a daughter who he calls the Phenomenon, and his wife, Mrs. Crummles. Um, they all own a theater company. They do Romeo and Juliet. They do a lot of different like dramatic pieces. Uh, and Nicholas and Smike enjoy the theater life, and they happen to be very good at it. They make uh, quite a smashing in Portsmouth with regard to their talents. And there's a young woman there at the theater company named Miss Svevalici, who is kind of the first budding love interest for Nicholas. She ends up getting married to another man later in the novel, but I kind of see this as a red herring in some ways because she puts, or Charles Dickens rather, puts her kind of in full view, even though there's other things happening in this section, um, such as uh, the idea that Nicholas is gaining independence, he's gaining a skill set, a new skill set that is 
Um, and he's also gaining a sense of uh, sort of ownership over his own life uh, and the ability to extricate himself from his family for the first time. So there's a lot happening here under the surface, but <laughs> Miss Nevalici and all the theater drama take at least a stereotypical or surface precedence. Kate, in the meanwhile, gets a new job she, because she doesn't work out at the seamstresses for a lot of reasons I don't want to go into in this episode. Uh, her new job is as a companion for this woman who is kind of emotionally manipulative and her husband emotionally manipulates her as well. So it's this whole nasty cycle of manipulation and gaslighting that's going on. And Kate is now in the center of that she also has this new and constant attention from the men that Rolf invited to dinner. The men convince Rolf to let, let him know or the men know um, where Kate is living. So it's, she's actually quite in present danger throughout this section of being assaulted again or approached or fill in the blank. Newman Noggs comes to Kate's rescue in the background, however, and unbeknownst to Kate because he is writing Nicholas this entire time, keeping tabs on Kate, keeping tabs on his boss, Ralph Nickleby, and he summons Nicholas and Smike when Kate starts to spiral down into this very bad situation. On the way back, Nicholas knows that there's some sort of unwanted male attention with regard to his sister, and he stops at a coffee shop and happens to stumble upon Sir Mulberry Hawk and his friends, who are badmouthing his sister in public, and he gets really mad, and he ends up um, having sort of a brawl or mishap with a carriage, and Long story short, Sir Mulberry Hawk is extremely injured. He's bedridden for weeks and months after that. Nicholas also gets injured, but only in a minor way. And the scene ends there. In the meantime, Miss LaCreevy, who is a character from the beginning of the book, she is the person who lodges Nicholas, his sister, and his mother when they first come into London. She's a miniature portrait painter and also just a cheery, wonderful figure in general. She's so kind throughout the book and she offers a lot of companionship, especially to Mrs. Nickleby throughout. She also becomes another sort of on and off figure throughout the rest of the book as Kate and Mrs. Nickleby end up moving back in with her and they move out of the London slums where Rolf Nickleby had placed them and Nicholas on the hunt for yet another job this time in London runs into Charles Cheribel and his twin brother I think his name is Ned and they're a good friend Tim Lincoln Water and these are just wonderful joyous men they make an entire living out of helping others, out of supporting others, being kind, being joyful, being generous. They're pretty much the exact opposite of Ralph Nickleby, and they end up becoming the, bene the benefactors of Nicholas. They give him a job as a clerk of sorts for Tim Lincolnwater, who is heading towards retirement in the next few years for sure. Um, 
So Nicholas starts to learn how to keep some books for the company, but they are just, it's the job and those sort of surface things are really just an excuse for them to pour kindness into Nicholas's life, into his sister and his mother's lives. One of the interesting sidebars that happens in this plot is that Squeers, the headmaster of the school, after recovery from the beating he gets, returns to London. He ends up running into Smike in the streets of London and kidnapping him to try to take him back to the boarding school where only treachery and desperation awaits him. Interestingly, John Bodie and his fiance are in town and they're hanging out with Fanny Squeers, the daughter, and John Bodie ends up rescuing Smike and sending him back to Nicholas. There is this whole like secondary plot that occurs in the latter half of the novel and I find this so interesting and so notable that Dickens could kind of have these little teeny plot strings going with Nicholas and with Kate and so forth but also there's a bigger overarching plot that we start about halfway through the novel. So this plot involves some new characters of course. <laughs> there's Arthur Gride who is an old confidant and assistant slash worker of Ralph Nickleby's. So they used to be kind of in partnership or like they, they kind of know each other throughout the years. They're in the same business of squandering people. So they know each other. They have a friendly business relationship. Arthur Gride wants to marry this young woman who is very virtuous, very beautiful, named Madeline Bray. Madeline Bray's father, I believe his name is Arthur Bray, ends up in his lifetime before and during Madeline's childhood, squandering all of her mother's riches and becoming a debtor and living in this really desolate place for debtors in London. He's very, very ill. And Arthur Gride says, uh, Mr. Bray is probably not Arthur Bray, <laughs> my mistake. Arthur Gride ends up knowing through his own squandering practices that Madeline Bray is entitled to a deed that will eventually get her 10,000 pounds. Um, however, if she's married, that 10,000 pounds becomes Arthur's property, Arthur Gride's property. So um, he makes a deal because Madeline doesn't know about this 10,000 pounds, he makes a deal with the father that if she marries him, then the father will live in relative comfort for the rest of his life and she will be pretty well off for the rest of her life. This sounds like a pretty good deal except Arthur Gride is like twice as worse as Ralph Nickleby. Ralph Nickleby is definitely more insidious than Arthur Gride. He's just kind of this like blubbering fool but Arthur Gride is manipulative, he's old, he's gross. So it's not a good deal for Madeline at all. They get to the wedding day and Madeline is getting ready for the wedding. She's sobbing. Her father, while Nicholas or Ralph Nickleby rather and Arthur Wright are waiting literally for her to come down for the wedding, um, her father drops dead to the floor. And in that course of time, Nicholas, Nickleby, Newman Noggs come and they save Madeline. <laughs> they literally whisk her away 
um, and they end up, you know, nurturing her with Kate's help through her uh, preceding illness after the death of her father, everything. So she's pretty much taken care of. She also was a customer of the Cherubal brothers uh, who knew her mother when and before she was married and really helped the daughter and mother alike before the mother died um, in their sort of personal affairs to have enough money to get things done. Squeers gets hired on by Ralph Nickleby to again, try to find this title deed for the property that Madeline Bray is owed, which gets stolen from Arthur Gride by his old housekeeper who resents the fact that he's getting married and eventually leaves him with all these documents. So Squeers befriends this housekeeper person, finds the property, eventually is caught <laughs> by um, Nicholas Nickleby and company with the property in hand, gets sent to jail, the property gets restored to Madeline, um, and the slow and excruciatingly painful for Ralph Nickleby <laughs> demise of Ralph Nickleby begins. Squeers eventually, by the way, goes to Australia as a prisoner. So, in the end of this very complex, amazing, I think very entertaining as well, um, plot, Ralph Nickleby ends up having this kind of slow demise where Smike ends up taking ill, probably with tuberculosis, and dying in the countryside where Nicholas and Kate have grown up. And Nicholas uh, comes back from London and there's this kind of big secret that's revealed, which is that Smike all along was Ralph Nickleby's son. And Ralph Nickleby allowed him to be basically tortured and not taken care of for his whole life. And that allowed him to live in poor conditions, be saved by the person he most despises in the world, which is Nicholas Nickleby, and eventually die in the arms um, of Nicholas Nickleby. So he kind of with the guilt and with knowing that, um, for example, Sir Mulberry Hawk has died in um, Paris. There's just kind of, there's these people who end up dying and robbing Ralph Nickleby of money, uh, large sums of money, shall I say, 10,000 pounds or more. So there's just a lot of negative circumstances that happen right in a row, leading to the total demise of Ralph Nickleby, and he hangs himself. At the end of the story, it wraps up in a very tidy bow. Nicholas marries Madeline, who he has loved for a third of the book so far, basically ever since the first the two characters first saw each other. Kate marries the nephew of the Cherubal brothers named Frank Cherubal, who is just a wonderful man in his own right, and Tim Lincolnwater, Nicholas's new master in the bookkeeping, marries little Mrs. LaCreevy, um, who is the portrait painter who we've had in and out of the story the whole time, which I think is adorable because they are older, but they still find love at the end of the novel.
how is that for a long plot summary for this book? Next up, we're going to talk about Dickens of Wah. So this is Dickens's third novel after the Pickwick Papers in 1836 was sort of released over a series of different installments as was the norm for uh, Charles Dickens and Oliver Twist in 1837 released the same way through a bunch of periodicals. Um, this particular novel was begun in 1838 it was begun on March 31st of 1838 to October 1st of 1839. So um, over a year this novel took to be written and it is uh, almost a thousand pages with the first manuscript. So no wonder um, it really is um, Meisterwerk. It's a really amazing piece of literature. Halbert Knight Brown uh, was the person who illustrated the original editions of the novel and um, I found it really interesting that Charles Dickens went under the pen name of Boz, B-O-Z, while he was writing this novel and so the illustrator ended up going under the pen name of Fizz, P-H-I-Z, so in the original covers, one of which I'll post in the show notes for this episode, um, have Fizz and Boz on the cover, which I think is really interesting and incredible. Also, a hint from Dickens's personal life, the month that Dickens started the novel was the month that his daughter Mary was born, and the month that he ended the novel was the month that his daughter Kate was born. So he had a lot going on during the time that he wrote and finished the novel. This novel also coincided with his fourth novel, Barnaby Rudge, which is also on our show list for the year, whenever we get to it. Um, so Barnaby Rudge was begun 10 months before this novel finished. So there was quite a big period where Charles Dickens was writing essentially both novels. Like his first two novels, in particular Oliver Twist, as we all know, was to expose child working conditions and the social impacts of what's going on with children and when children have to work and social reform everywhere. This book also has a social aim, which is to expose the horrendous conditions of Yorkshire boarding schools. There was, in particular, a schoolmaster named William Shaw, which the character Squeers is based off of. He had a boarding school called Bowles Academy, and Dickens, among others, took a two-day trip to Yorkshire to actually visit these boarding schools and have a basis to write off of, and evidently in two days they found enough to write the entire novel off of, so... It was a very fruitful trip indeed, it seems. There were accounts of William Shaw, by the way, where there were students who went blind from malnutrition and other harmful beatings and such like this. And there were also at least one, uh, one child or a pair of children that died every year in these Yorkshire boarding schools. So it was actually um, quite an urgent mission for Dickens and for someone to start exposing the horrors of the boarding schools. 
Dickens's mother is the basis for the character Mrs. Nickleby, which I found so interesting because Mrs. Nickleby is portrayed in a fond light for sure, like the tone is very fond, but at the same time it's not a pretty light <laughs> and it, it, Mrs. Nickleby is, she doesn't hurt anyone nor does she help much, so I found that really, not troubling, but <laughs> you know, um, just so fascinating that um, Charles Dickens would take such a realistic posture towards the portrayal of his mother in his third novel. And I would say overall that the books in Dickens's Ouvroir, I've read about two-thirds of all of Dickens's books. I would say the books that this book most reminded me of in terms of its style and the characters were Oliver Twist, of course, and also David Copperfield, which is one of his later works. Next up, let's talk about some character and setting. The Yorkshire School is definitely a setting that stands out in my mind because it is a place where Nicholas immediately realizes there's something wrong. He's a naive character and he definitely has a lot of growing to do throughout the book, but what strikes me the most is that even though he's trying to be optimistic about it, there's just this like sense of heaviness that is on him when he enters the place. And when he leaves, it's very evident that the heaviness just dissipates. I think the way that he, Dickens, portrays the place and the heaviness is mostly through actually the, domineer the domineering characters of Mrs. and Mr. Squeers their actions and their absence, things get lighter, things get better at the school. The conditions are still bad, the boys are still malnourished and mistreated, but at the same time when the schoolmaster is out in London gathering more boys for the school, for instance, there's just this sense of the atmosphere has gotten that much lighter and that much easier to breathe. I also wanted to juxtapose two settings that I find really interesting at the beginning of the book. Miss LaCreevy's set of apartments, which are chalked full of portraits. Uh, Miss LaCreevy, as I said, is a portrait painter. She's kind of the, I don't want to say a caricaturist, but she definitely, you know, does her best to reform <laughs> the faces of the people that, uh, who sit for her. And so there's just portraits literally lining all the walls everywhere, stacked on the staircase, just there's portraits everywhere. It's a cluttered space, but it's a happy space. Um, and that's something that I really latched onto. You know, it's not the best of spaces by any means. It's not a space where you go in and say, wow, this, these people are living in luxury. But at the same time, it's a cluttered space and she's made room for other people um, and other voices in her life. And... You know, she's this innocent creature, but she's just so joyful and so kind. And that definitely is reflected in the space that Dickens writes her in. Also, Ralph's house. <laughs> and he is living in one of the best streets in London. He is living in this big house. Furnishings are all of the highest quality. It's kind of minimalist from what Dickens writes. There's kind of, you know, there's stuff there, but it's all just really nice, really stoic. There's definitely a theme. And Ralph Nickleby fits right into this scene. 
Um, and it's a place where immediately characters like Kate feel uncomfortable. They feel like they don't fit in, they feel like they're not welcome. I think Newman Noggs, in a certain sense as well, becomes just a little uneasy around Ralph Nickleby and I don't know, there's a, a balance between Newman Noggs's indifference and his unease throughout the novel that comes out at different places. But yeah, this just this kind of stoicness about the place that is definitely reflected in Ralph Nickleby's character. And also Portsmouth, I wanted to mention. Portsmouth is not a place that's described so far as it's lived in the novel. So Portsmouth is really about, as these other places as well, about the characters in Portsmouth. And um, it's described as this, you know, colorful place, just a lot of people all around everywhere and different personalities for sure. Um, but again, there's, you know, the apartments might be scanned, the living conditions might not be that well, that great or that well oriented, but at the same time, the people are what make the experience for Nickleby and Smike. And two things I'll mention about character. One is that Kate Nickleby and Madeline Bray are two, two very different coins, I shall say. Kate is becomes this kind of two-dimensional, three-dimensional, beautiful character where she ends up standing up to her uncle during certain points of the novel and really being stern with him and really asserting herself. Um, she is not afraid to work for her keep. She's not afraid to um, take over the household chores or whatever needs to be done in lieu of her mother not doing them. Um, She's kind of this this strong character that has, you know, a sweet side, but also she's going to get stuff done and she's going to do what's right at the end of the day. And then Madeline Bray, we don't get much time with Madeline. We never follow Madeline within, you know, a plot string or a plot sequence, for example. Um, so Madeline Bray becomes much more one-dimensional and she definitely, you know, has some of the similar qualities of Nicholas in that she's perhaps naive, but she is willing to be brave and take things over. She's willing to ask for help when she needs it. So there's, you know, there's certain qualities that we know from her background and her experience with her father that definitely impact her character and her characterization. But at the same time, we, there's just not enough exposure to Madeline to know much about her other than that she's beautiful and kind and brave. The second thing I'll mention is that what's fascinating to me is that Nicholas is portrayed as a really immature character throughout the novel, especially when it comes to his uncle. There's a theme in the book about what constitutes a true man or a true gentleman. Um, you know, there are people in the book who have lots of money, who are actually lords or gentlemen, um, but who don't act very gentlemanly. Um, and then there are people like Nicholas Nickleby who don't really have any fortune or money to speak of, but who are out making their fortunes. And, you know, then there are people like the Cherubal brothers who were once extremely poor, but through this constant 
cycle of gentlemanhood or of chivalry, they ended up getting riches in the end. So it's a really, I find this amazing because a lot of times we, or I at least, read books where the main character has, is sort of favorable to you the entire time. You always want, you know, the main character to be on the reader's side and vice versa. However, I wasn't always on Nicholas's side in this book, uh, and I would be super curious to hear what you all think about this, but I, I wasn't. It, he was immature, and he was violent in the first half of the book, and, um, you know, ends up doing a lot of damage, um, and that was not favorable to me as a reader. Um, of course, I was rooting for characters like Kate, like Miss LaCreevy, um, ultimately Madeline Bray, but yeah, there were points in the novel where I didn't like Nicholas, and I definitely didn't want to support him, um, but he ends up in the end maturing a lot, which I think speaks to the situations that Dickens places him in. And last but not least, some of these quotes from the novel which are incredible. I love looking through quotes because they happen to be quite revealing of the novel in general. Mr. Mantellini, who is um, definitely very luxurious, very extravagant. Um, he's the husband of the person who used to own the seamstress company that Kate worked for at first. Um, and he is, you know, he ruins the entire picture for Mrs. Mantellini. She ends up becoming bankrupt and destitute when she was once quite prosperous due to Mr. Mantellini's troubles. On the Kindle version, this quote is on page 1008. The woman looked first at Nicholas and then at Mr. Mantellini as if uncertain on whom to visit this extraordinary behavior. But Mr. Mantellini, happening by ill luck to thrust his nose from under the bedclothes, in his anxiety to ascertain whether the visitors were gone, she suddenly, and with a dexterity which could only have been acquired by long practice, flung a pretty heavy clothes basket at him, with so good an aim that he kicked more violently than before, though without venturing to making any effort to dis disengage his head, which was quite extinguished. Thinking this a favorable opportunity for departing before any of the torrent of her wrath to charge itself upon him, Nicholas hurried Kate off and left the unfortunate subject of this unexpected recognition to explain his conduct as best he could. So this quote is at the end of the novel, and it's there's a lot happening here, but I really just enjoy the characterization of Mr. Mantellini throughout the novel. This novel is a comedy. There's just there's a lot comic about it, um, and that's something that I haven't read much of from Dickens. So if you think about it, it's a really ridiculous situation. Mr. Mantellini is being a baby. He's being a literal toddler. He 
is like screaming and kicking. He's like, we don't have any money. I don't have any money for clothes. And he's like, you know, kicking on the bed. And like, you know, he ends up, you know, faking that he's gonna hurt himself and stuff, which is again, just overblown, immature, dramatized. And it's not okay at the end. It's really, really detrimental to Mrs. Mantellini and her emotional health. He ends up, you know, kicking and Mrs. Mantellini by the end of the novel has had enough of Mr. Mantellini and uh, she's ended up kind of practicing just making him stop doing what he's doing with regard to this manipulative behavior and Nicholas and Kate who are watching this whole scene, remember this is Kate's previous employer, <laughs> they're disgusted and by the end and they're probably bewildered as well by the end they leave. And I have another quote from page 1002, also the end of a novel. And this is a page where I was thinking a lot about how this book ended. And this book ended in a very different way than a lot of his other novels. It ended basically like Jane Austen's novels, where it's, it's like you know, like Emma, for example, you know, all these things happen, there's like a double wedding on the last day, you know, it's, there's just, it's a quick ending, it's not a very good one, in my opinion, um, there's just like too many strings to tie up at the end, so he does a good job with Ralph Nickleby, with that whole sequence, and Arthur Gride and everyone, and Squeers, but like in terms of the happy families, <laughs> Dickens just wraps it up, so the Treble brothers invite Nicholas, Kate, everyone to a dinner, and this is what happens. Never was such a dinner as that since the world began. There was a superannuated bank clerk, Tim Lincolnwater's friend, and there was the chubby old lady, Tim Lincolnwater's sister, and there was so much attention from Tim Lincolnwater's sister to Miss LaCreevy, and there were so many jokes from the superannuated bank clerk, and Tim Lincolnwater himself was in such tip-top spirits, and little Miss Wilcreevy was in such a comical state that of themselves they would have composed the pleasantest party conceivable. Then there was Mrs. Nickleby, so grand and complacent, Madeline and Kate, so blushing and beautiful, Nicholas and Frank, so devoted and proud, and all... and all four so silently and tremblingly happy. There was Newman, so subdued yet so overjoyed, and there were the twin brothers, so delighted and interchanging such looks that the old servant stood transfixed behind his master's chair and felt his eyes glow dim, grow dim as they wandered round the table. So again, this is kind of near the end where they've realized, oh, we're gonna get married and everything's happy. And I think, you know, it's a really, interesting passage of description because it describes what each of the characters are doing at the dinner table but at the same time like this is the ending is so short i really at the end i was left wanting in the sense that i had wished that there was more to the ending um of course all the strings get tied up and everything but um yeah i just wish there was a little bit more to the ending all right this was a long episode my voice is failing me <laughs> but I hope you enjoyed it and I definitely enjoyed reading this novel, reviewing it. It was a wild ride from beginning to ending. It is drop dead hilarious. 
It is so funny, this novel. I found myself chuckling on the train as I was reading it, so I would highly recommend it. Um, it's definitely one of the more dynamic Dickens's no Dickens novels, which is high praise. Um, and I, again, enjoyed it a lot. This is one of the earliest novels that I read from Dickens other than Oliver Twist, so I'm excited to get into other early novels in the latter part of the series. If you enjoyed the episode and would like to hear more from us, we've done everything from Shakespeare to Dracula. There really is a show and a series for everyone, so I'd recommend checking out our website at relevanceofliterature.com under the ongoing series tab for links to our entire back catalog of episodes, as well as any current goings-on of our show. If you are looking for even more content, we also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash relevanceofliterature. Thank you so much for your support, and we'll see you next time.